I mean, I have thoughts on which ministry team is the most fun, but this is not the place. And so we'll, we'll talk about it later. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter two. And we're gonna be working out of uh, verses eight through 15. And as you're opening the word of God, let's talk to the God of, word, of the word and ask him to help us understand it and be transformed by it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us. And I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us through your word. You have promised that your word cuts deep to bone and marrow, that it transforms us, that it's powerful and effective. And so I pray, Lord, that these people would not hear from me this morning, they would hear from you. In Jesus' name and by the spirit, amen. All right, well, about uh, 10 years ago, I was in Africa. Um, some Kenyan friends and I were doing pastor's conferences and some evangelism near the Kenya-Uganda border in these little villages. And I remember um, one day we were walking through a particular village and every single um, hut that I saw right next to it was a little smaller hut. So imagine like a, a normal-sized normal mud hut and then kind of like a mini hut right next to it. And I didn't think of it, of it too much at first, but as we kept walking along, I kept noticing these little mini huts that were right next to these regular sized huts. And I started to think, I wonder what, these, what are these mini huts for? I mean, we're way out in the bush. There's no cars or anything, so it's not a garage. You know, it's too small for a workshop. And so we kept going, and I, I don't know if you guys have ever been in this particular situation before, but you have that moment when you're like, this is real life, I, I don't, this can't, be, this can't be real. Because I came up to a particular mini hut, and coming from the doorway of that mini hut was this trail of blood. And not only that, but dripping from the door was blood. So I turned to one of my friends who lived in the village um, that was next to this one, and I said, Wasike, why is there blood coming out of that little mini hut? What is that? And I kid you not, with the straightest face, he just matter-of-factly says, oh, that's their idol shrine. Y'all, I'm from little old Niceville, Florida. I went to the First Baptist Church of Niceville, Florida. I don't know what to do with blood-dripping idol shrines. We've been out in the bush for a few days now. I hadn't slept well. I am this close to freaking out when he tells me this. So I'm like, bro, you stop playing with me right now. What is an idol shrine? And so he just, he, in his kindness, he pulls me aside and he explains to me, that what this particular family does is they take a goat or a sheep and they put it in that little mini hut as a sacrifice to their God. The God eats it at night and, and the God blesses their crops and takes care of their families. And I th think about that. I thought about that a lot when he told me that. But I think about that even now and, and for, for a while. And, and I'll be honest with you, in my walk with the Lord and my own spiritual formation, God has really used that particular moment in that village at the Kenya-Uganda border to really shape my understanding of spiritual formation. 
because I think about what it is that they were actually doing in that little village. They were taking something of value and they were sacrificing it to an idol so that they could have security, significance, satisfaction. And I know we, we think about that in Dallas, Texas in 2023, and, and we're like, yeah, it's kind of, that's a neat story, but I mean, what, what does that have to do with us? And I'm just saying, that in, in Dallas in 2023, we, we don't even have a category for idol worship. And when we think about idols, it, it's usually some, you know, blood-dripping idol shrine or some Indiana Jones stuff. It would say, I mean, that's, that's kind of weird. I mean, surely, surely we don't worship idols. And yet, my hope is that as we get into this text this morning, Colossians 2, 8 through 15, my hope is that you actually see that it doesn't matter if you're in Africa, if you're in ancient Colossae, or you're in America, because idol worship is very much a part of the human experience. And our own cultural idols are far more sinister than we ever thought possible. And so what, what I want us to do today as we, we walk through this text together, I just want us to kind of talk through some stuff. We're gonna get more into this biblical concept of idol worship, and then we're gonna see if we can put some language to idols. And then, Lord willing, hopefully we'll be able to take a, a next step and, and hopefully displace some of the idols that maybe unknowingly have taken root in our lives. So let's, let's get into this together. Let me start with this in, uh, in verse eight, and we'll go from there. This is Colossians chapter two, verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirit of the world, and not according to Christ. So if you look back at that phrase, takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, I don't think what Paul is saying here is that philosophy itself is bad. That, that's not what he's saying at all. Philosophy, as we would understand it, he, he's not trashing the discipline and art of philosophy. Uh, the, the Greek word is, is philosophia, um, and, and he's not talking about philosophy in general. What he's talking about is a specific philosophical system that's devoid, that's empty of intellectual value, spiritual value, and moral value. And really what he's saying here is don't be taken captive by any philosophical system or worldview that promises security, significance, or satisfaction, but is in actuality just empty and godless. Now, we know from the historical evidence, when you kind of put together the pieces of what was going on in ancient Colossae, Paul's warning about this stuff, it came for a reason. There was a purpose behind him actually writing this. See, the city of Colossae in ancient times was known for its vast array of religious practices and temples. In, in Colossae, you could find a god, you could find a temple for just about anything. So if you were sick and you needed to get better, there's a god for that. If you need protection, there's a god for that. I found it interesting, um, in the research, I found that archeologists have even found that there was a temple dedicated to the sewer god. And when I first read that, my first thought was honestly, 
what is worship like on Sunday mornings in that temple? But they had it. They had the temple to the sewer god. And so what you've got is you've got all these temples and this philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. It, it, it's idols. You've got a city full of idols. And this is why Paul is writing this because he knows what's at stake for the believers in Colossae. He knows you don't mess with these empty and godless idols because ultimately what they're going to lead to is destruction. So let me, let me see if I can explain it like this. Um, aggressive mimicry. Do we know what aggressive mimicry is in animals? Basically, what aggressive mimicry is, is how predators lure in prey in order to eat them. So take the alligator snapping turtle. Let's see a picture of it right there. Horrifying little creatures. Um, alligator snapping turtle. What the alligator snapping turtle has is a, is a little tongue that looks like a worm. You can see that small red tongue there if you look closer. And so what they'll do is they'll sit on the bottom of the lake very, very still. And it opens its mouth wide. And what will happen is a fish will come by and they think it's a worm. And so the fish will come in and the fish will actually start to take bites of this worm that's actually a tongue. Now, it's crazy. Like The snapping turtle actually allows the fish to take little bites and taste what they think is actually a nice little worm. So you've got the fish completely at ease, chowing down on what he thinks is a nice meal inside the mouth of the alligator snapping turtle. And then all of a sudden, bam, those razor-sharp jaws slam shut and it's all over for the fish. That's the image that Paul is getting at here when he talks about being taken captive by these empty and godless idols. It's being attracted to something that looks appetizing, something that looks really good, but in reality, it's something that's luring you closer and closer in for the purposes of destroying you. Because what he's saying is basically, yeah, that Greek temple, that mysticism from the false prophets, that may look like a tasty little worm, but in reality, it's luring you closer and closer and closer, and it's going to destroy you. Now, all of that was happening about 2,000 or so years ago, a long time ago. But here's where I would really have us dial in this morning because I wanna take some time to get into this because again, it doesn't matter if it's ancient Colossae, if it's Africa, or if it's America because alligator snapping turtles, the way that they lure in prey to, in order to destroy them, that's a textbook example of how idols work. In fact, let me, let me give you a, a working definition just so we can kind of be on the same page with, with what I'm talking about, an idol. An idol is simply something that we value more than we value God. An idol is just simply something that we value more than we value God. And idols always, they always promise security, significance, and satisfaction, but they always deliver disillusionment, anxiety, and fear. Always. And I know that when we, you know, we can look at a, a blood dripping idol shrine or we can look at a Greek temple and we can be like, yep, that's an idol. But, but I think when it comes to identifying our own cultural items, our idols, that, that can be a, a bit more challenging 
And so what I want to do now that we've kind of gone through the concept of what Paul's talking about here with this not being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, what I want to do is see if we can put some language on what this philosophy and empty deceit actually is. And I want to see if we can consider together what our own idols actually are. Because here's what can happen. If we can actually name what our own cultural idols actually are, what that's gonna do is it's gonna give us access to experience an incredible amount of freedom. Because ultimately, that stranglehold that the sin of that, that idol was that it represents in your life, it's gonna begin to be broken free. And if we kind of bring our, our snapping turtle analogy back in, we're gonna be free from the razor sharp jaws that are intent on destroying us. And so, so what I wanna do is I, I wanna step into the biblical counseling office for a minute and kind of consider this together. Biblical counselors would tell us that when we're thinking about idols, there's two categories that we need to think of. Surface idols and root idols. Surface idols and root idols. So let's start with surface idols. Surface idols are things in your life that you're readily able to see. You can be like, yep, that's a problem with me. I see it, it's on the surface. So let me kind of give you some examples of what surface idols are. You've got image idols. Image idolatry is when you think that ultimate security, significance, and satisfaction can only be found if you have a particular look or body image. Now, is it bad to be healthy? No. In fact, there's a lot in scripture that would tell us to be good stewards of our bodies. But here's the real insidious part about idols. Idols are usually not bad things. Idols are usually good things that have taken on too much weight in our lives. So it's interesting, one of the Hebrew words that the Bible uses for, for worship is the word kabod. Kabod is the Hebrew word for, for worship, and, and it literally means weight. So to give something false worship is to give something too much weight. Because what you've done is you've started to lean on it to give you the security, the significance, and the satisfaction that's only found in God and what you've done essentially is you've taken a good thing, you've made it a God thing, and it's in turn become a bad thing and it's gonna destroy you. So you've got image idolatry. You've got work idolatry. Ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction can only be found if you're highly productive and get a lot of work done. Materialism idols. Ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction can only be found if you have a certain level of wealth or certain material possessions. Friend group idols, ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction can only be found if I'm a part of a particular social group. Ultimate uh, achievement idols, ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction can only be found if I'm recognized for my accomplishments, if I'm excelling in my career or schoolwork. Family idols, ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction can only be found if my children or my parents are happy with me. That's real quiet in here now. Are we uncomfortable yet? Because we can go on and on and on about more surface idols. There's a ton of surface idols. But my guess is that one or two of those, you can look at and say, yep, that's me. Man, if, when I get that promotion, everything's gonna be okay. Oh, if, we could, if we could just go on that vacation, everything's, everything's gonna be good. If he would just, 
if she would just, if we could just get that sick 2023 Honda Odyssey with the second slide row magic seats and the leather interior. But the thing about surface idols is that by dealing with surface idols, it's never actually going to solve your problem. Because surface idols are just a manifestation of what the real problem actually is. So, so think about surface idols like this. Yesterday, I cut my grass. It looked great. Cut it, weeded it, edged it. It was, it was wonderful. And I, and I basked in, in the wonder of landscaping my yard. But I know that my landscaping glory will be short-lived. For in my yard, there is something called Dallas grass. Dallas grass is an awful, terrible little plant. It, it, it's not grass, it's a weed. It's a, it's a dark, evil thing that Satan uses for the vexation of God's people. It's very hard to destroy. And because Dallas grass grows at a rate of two to three times faster than St. Augustine, as sure as I'm standing here, what's gonna happen in a few days is that my yard is gonna have these splotches of Dallas grass all over it. So you can mow over it. You can take care of it by mowing over it, but it's just gonna pop right back up. This is how we think of surface idols. They are Dallas grass. You can mow over them, but if you don't get down to the root, it's not going to solve the deeper problem because surface idols are simply the visible manifestations of deeper root idols. And, and, and so that's why when, when Paul says to not be taken captive by deceitful and, and empty philosophy, uh, we need to consider these four root idols. And biblical counselors would tell us there's, there's four root idols, and, and I want us to walk through these four root idols, and my, my invitation to you is to, to come deeper still and really consider, hey, where do I need to uproot some things in my life? Where's some philosophy and empty deceit that's taken root that I need to, to get down to the root and actually take it out? So root idol number one is Comfort. Ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction is only found in pleasurable experiences or a particular quality of life. A person who worships comfort, they want privacy. They want freedom. Their greatest nightmare is stress and demands. So, not surprisingly, if comfort is your idol, then authentic relationships don't come easy. Why? Because authentic relationships require what? Stress and demands. To be in authentic relationship, to have friends with people requires you to kind of get into some uncomfortable positions sometimes. It requires you to go places and have your weaknesses exposed. The problem, emotion that typically reveals a comfort worshiper is boredom. A comfort worshiper will avoid boredom at all costs. So they'll buy toys and gadgets, they'll invest in hobbies, or just look for experiences to break up the monotony of day-to-day -day life. Now again, comfort, not a bad thing. Comfort is a good thing. We're designed by God to, to desire comfort, but if it takes on too much weight and it's what you must have for security, significance, and satisfaction, then it's gonna be the snapping turtle that brings you in to destroy you. 
root idol number two, approval. Ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction is only found if I have approval from blank. This person wants affirmation. They want love. They want relationship. Their greatest nightmare is rejection. So people who want approval, who worship approval, they're going to do and say just about anything to get people they deem important happy. So they'll overcommit, they'll overpromise and overstate in order to gain affirmation from others. Not that I would have any experience in that. Problem emotion that typically reveals an approval worshiper is fear. And what that means is that someone who worships approval has a tendency to kind of be a chameleon in social situations. Person who worships approval also has a hard time speaking their mind and have conviction. Why? Because you could lose the approval of somebody. Root idol number three is control. Ultimate security, significance, or satisfaction is only found if I have mastery over my life in the area of blank. A person who worships control wants self-discipline. They want certainty. They want standards. That's why the mantra of a control worshiper is always, if I want to do something right, i got to do it myself. The greatest nightmare is uncertainty, and the problem of emotion is worry. Why is it worry? Because we try to control our lives. And we realize we can't control our lives, so we worry, which makes us control it even more, which makes us worry even more, which makes us want to control it. And this is the vicious cycle of control, and that's the tasty worm that Satan will use to bring you in in order to destroy you. Finally, the fourth idol, root idol, is power. Security, significance, and satisfaction is if I have power and influence over others. So what you seek when you worship power is success. It's winning, it's influence. Greatest nightmare of a power worshiper is humiliation. And the problem emotion that typically reveals a power worshiper is anger. So comfort, approval, control, power. Tomorrow, if you were to come into my office and we sat down and I just asked you, you know, what do you want God to do in your life? What are some areas where you feel like you just need some freedom? And you're like, well, my, my job is kind of you know, consuming me right now. Um, I feel like I'm just kind of into this materialism thing. I have to have the best. I have to have the best thing. You know, I, I feel like I'm on the outs with my friends, and I just feel like I need to be in this particular friend group. And I say, okay, well, what's causing that? Like, what's the root of that? What do you think's feeding that? Do you think it's control? Do you think it's approval? Do you think it's comfort? Do you think it's power? And what we're trying to do is get to the root of the issue. Now, why do we do that? Because if you're being dominated by one of these root idols, then you are not letting your roots grow deeper into Christ. You are not allowing Christ to be all that you need for security, significance, and satisfaction. It's what Pierce was talking about last week. To let your roots grow deep, to be built up in Christ. And if you're being dominated by one of these root idols, then there's no room for you to be overwhelmed by the grace and freedom of Christ. And so, so maybe as I've walked through these, these root idols, maybe you can identify some of them in you. Maybe you're like, yep, I know exactly which one is me. Maybe you're like, I don't know. Maybe you're like, can I be all four? Um, Here's the good news. 
The good news is that there is a way toward freedom when it comes from breaking the stranglehold that idols and sin has on our lives. And contrary to what you might think, it's not by trying harder. It's not by white knuckle discipline. It's not trying to destroy the idols ourselves. Here it is. It's simply to go deeper into the promises of the gospel. And that's exactly where Paul's gonna take us in verses nine through 15. He takes us back to the gospel. He warns us, don't be taken captive by idols. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And then he makes a beeline back to the gospel. Why? Because he knows the gospel is the only thing powerful enough to actually free you from this hold that these root idols have on you. So this is verse nine. Let's get into verse nine. We'll go through 15. For in him, this is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph over them in him. Now, we've heard that before. When, when Richard preached in Colossians 1 a few weeks ago, Richard basically went over these objective realities of the gospel. He's, and right here again, Paul is going through these objective realities of the gospel. He's saying, this is what God has done for you in the gospel. You have been filled in him. You have been buried with him in baptism. You were raised from the dead. God made you alive with him. He canceled your debt. He nailed it to a cross. And catch this, he disarmed all the powers of hell itself and spiked the ball to celebrate. But the big question that we have for the text is simply this. We've read this already. So why now in Colossians 2, if we've already read it in Colossians 1, does he, come, does he bring this up again? Why does he keep coming back to the gospel? Because if I could quote Martin Luther and what he said in his introduction to his commentary on Romans. To progress in the Christian life is to always begin again. To progress in the Christian life is to always begin again, to make progress, to go forward in freedom, to break the stranglehold that idols have on us will not be by our own effort. It's not gonna be by trying harder. It's by coming back to the objective realities of what God has done for us in the gospel over and over and over again. Because hear it now, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's not just how we begin as Christians. It's also how we grow as Christians because how we grow is the same way as how we begin, which is through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Listen, 
Believing in what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel is not just a one-time checkbox for forgiveness. Believing what Jesus accomplished in the gospel and to believe it again and again and again is how you experience freedom from the disillusionment, the anxiety, and the fear of caused by idols because, and this is the game changer here, the ability to do in the Christian life is only possible by being soaked in the fuel of what's already been done. Because was not Jesus' last words on the cross? It wasn't, go fix yourself. Jesus' last words on the cross are, it is finished. Everything needed for beginning the Christian life and continuing the Christian life is found in the finished work of Christ when Jesus died. And the reason that Paul is immediately bringing us back to the gospel after he talks about the disillusionment, the anxiety, and the fear of idols is because he knows the only thing powerful enough to break free of these things and experience genuine and true security, significance, and satisfaction in Christ is through the gospel and remembering and remembering over and over the objective realities of what God has done for you in the cross. So if I could just kind of put it together as we close out. If we could just kind of bring it all together and see if we can make a little bit of progress here. I want to invite you into an exercise. Because some of you in here, when we went over those root idols, you can be like, yeah, I I see it, Uh uh-huh. I want you to take a minute and I want you just to kind of consider and think, what's my root idol? If you could name it, that's where we would start. Is it comfort? Is it control? Is it approval? Or are you worshiping power? If you could just name what your idol is. Because here's why it's important to name it. If we can name it, we can expose it. We can expose it for what it really is. Once you've named it, you can expose it for all the disillusionment that it causes you. You can see how it builds anxiety in you. You could see how it builds fear in you. You could see really how it is, the alligator snapping turtle that's luring you in with the promise of a tasty worm only to destroy you because you've been there before. But here's the second part of exposing your idol. It's not just that we expose what it does to us. It's not just that we expose what it cost us. We expose what it costs Jesus. You're like, well, what did it cost Jesus? Well, we would only have to look back to the verses that we just read. Because in verse 14, it says that, yes, God nailed our debt to the cross, but here's the thing. He nailed it to the cross while Jesus was strapped to those beams. Brother, sister, that was about you. That was about me. That was about my worship of approval. That was about your worship of control and power. That was about us. We just sit there for a second and we consider 
what it costs us, what this idol costs us every single day of our life. And we also consider that it cost our Lord his life. So we name it, we expose it, and from there, God would just have us come back to the gospel and rejoice. Because there's no one in this room who is not guilty of idol worship, and yet the gospel bids us to continually come back and be made new. Come and be forgiven. Come and be free. And I'm telling you, that's the pathway toward freedom from idols. The only way to displace the power of these idols in your life is not by white-knuckle discipline. It's not by trying harder. It's by experiencing the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us in the gospel where you start to realize, wow, I am a bigger, a bigger sinner than I ever thought. But that just makes Jesus a bigger savior than I ever imagined. That is the way toward freedom. We name it, we expose it. We continue to come back to Jesus and what he has done for us in the gospel. Friends, the only way to displace these idols in your life is to allow King Jesus to rule and reign in your life in such a way that he uproots them and he displaces them. And you experience the security, the significance, and the satisfaction that is only found in him and that you were ultimately created for. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us freedom in the gospel. Thank you that you have given us your son. Lord, we pray that we might experience and know more of your presence, that you might free us from those things which so easily ensnare us, and that philosophy and empty deceit would not have the final word in our lives, but rather it would be your son and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name and by the Spirit, amen.